God is calling us all to make disciples of all nations, and the task is not complete. Problem is, it's such a big world with so much need. How do I know what to do? How do I get involved? Should I stay or should I go? If I go, there will be trouble. If I stay, it will be double. So come on and let me know. Should I stay or should I go? So sang the clash. God has told us to look to the nations and he'll give us Durham. So how, God? Where? How do we as a church know what to focus on in the nations? We're going to read from Nehemiah chapter 1 into chapter 2. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favour in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, 
How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Samballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. We're looking at four key words today to help us answer these questions, where and how. Burden, vision, strategy, resources. So number one, burden. I picked some definitions from Webster's Dictionary. That which is born or carried, a load. Sometimes with difficulty. Birth. Hmm. Refrain, often repeated or dwelt upon. Main topic. Drone of a bagpipe. Thankfully, we're not burdened with that in this church. Here's my definition. God pointing, agitating us to greater clarity, purpose and direction, breaking our hearts for something outside of ourselves. How do we know what Nehemiah's burden was and what about ours? Nehemiah had a government job in Persia with direct access to King Artaxerxes, who was a king. He was clearly a person of influence. Nehemiah was his cupbearer. He needed to be trustworthy. He needed to be someone popular so people wouldn't try to poison him. His brother arrived from Jerusalem and Nehemiah asked questions. Verse 2. Tell me about the Jews. Tell me about the city. He cared. He knew the significance of Israel in God's redemptive plan for the world, even though he was 400 years before Jesus and he was living in exile. Do we, do we know that Jesus is the only way to the Father, that no one comes to him from the whole world but by Jesus? So here's the first point. Ask and listen. The news, updates, returning missionaries, regions beyond prayer input, all sorts of channels are available to us to get information. The Jews were in great trouble and shame, we read in verse 3. What's an equivalent today? We don't live in ancient Near East towns and cities with walls for security and safety and peace, though we do have fences that come down in the rain and the storms. But imagine removing the police, living in fear, everything broken. We do know that there are broken down walls spiritually. There's spiritual malaise all around us. This was Nehemiah's brother telling him. So he felt the weight and he wept. It became his burden. Jesus also wept over Jerusalem. So 
What makes you weep? What do you fast and pray for? What are these things or these words in verse 4 for us? How would you feel if Durham was in ruins? And what about Sunderland? What about Ukraine now? What weighs heavily on your heart? This indicates what your burdens are. Pray that God would give you burdens. Pray that God would move our hearts. Many years ago, I was teaching in Mombasa on, a, on the predominantly Islamic coast of East Africa. And I had just become a committed Christian. And an Indian colleague had just become quite a committed Muslim. And we were off on holiday together. We prayed and I remember both of us talking to God and I was asking him, Lord, lead us both further into his truth. And from then on, that became a sort of burden for me, a weight, knowing that Jesus is the truth. And I want Muslim women in particular to come to know Jesus. And that has shaped me over the years. So what happens if you don't blind bake pastry with weights like beans? Yeah, we know from Bake Off, it's the sort of soggy bottom syndrome. Burdens. Consider how red beans bear down on a pastry crust like packs on a donkey. Notice how air tries to bubble up, crack, weaken, yet the beans defend. Read the result. Crisp definition. Able to hold so much more. Feel the smooth slide of beans through your fingers like the tail end of trouble. Burdens born through the fire in the end bring shape. What did Nehemiah do with his burden? He went to God and he prayed and he prayed. Not just once, for some days. So chapter 1 verse 1, the month is Chislev, which is my birthday month. I had to look it up. It's November, December. Chapter 2, verse 1, it's Nisan, which is March or April. So that's a time gap of four months. And it later took 52 days to do the reconstruction of Jerusalem. So more than twice the time was spent praying. We get Nehemiah's wonderful prayer of perspective, humility, claiming God's promises, specific requests. And it's well worth the study, as are the seven remember prayers in this book. But I'll mention the name of God of heaven here. Apparently, originally, one commentator says this name was a Persian god address. And it made me think that um, here's Nehemiah cross-culturally applying it to Israel's Jehovah. All supreme names belong to God alone if they are noble and true. And we pick up these treasures on our travels cross-culturally that we can lay at his feet. Islam has 99 names for God. So, here are three. Al-Wajid is the pointing one. What's he pointing you to? What's your role? To go, to give, to encourage, to pray? Al-Muakhir is the delayer. That one sticks in your throat a bit. 
and it's appropriate for us at Emmanuel somehow. Atawab. This is the ever acceptor of repentance. And I just love that one. We have got to prioritise prayer. Join a prayer group or two or all of them. Now is certainly the time. Point number two, the word second word to answer the question where and how. First of all, burden. Now vision. What is it? It's a clear and compelling image of what could be. It's forged in the furnace of prayer. It's so real, we can sense and articulate it. What was Nehemiah's vision? Chapter 2, verse 5, shows us it was of rebuilt gates and walls. But why hadn't the other returned exiles rebuilt the walls? Maybe it had taken all their energy to resettle and their enthusiasm had cooled. Spiritual fervour can fade so easily and hard realities or petty details disenchant us. Maybe they just couldn't see what needed doing and didn't have any vision for it. Maybe it was all too troubling and shameful for them. Nehemiah, 800 miles away, was called in with a fresh outlook and vision. Proverbs 29 verse 18 says, Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. So vision is vital, but it can't be something wacky that has nothing to do with the scripture. It comes from God and must be in line with obediently keeping his word. When Angus and I first headed off to Oman, God gave us a vision of the curse of slavery and false religion that had come down from Oman to East Africa, being reversed by the blessing of the gospel, with Swahili-speaking Omanis believing and becoming a bridge to the rest of the Gulf. We can't say we fully realise that there are stages, digging and sowing and reaping, watering, of courses for horses, if you like. But it was a vision seen and greeted from afar as Hebrews 11 verse 13 talks of. Third point is strategy. How did Nehemiah get going? He used his job as his springboard. Chapter 2 verse 1, he looked sad in the presence of the king. Wow, he'd never been sad before in the king's presence. And that got noticed. He's a very cool character. But also the kings in those days liked to surround themselves with happy people. And you were sad at your peril. He used his connections and relationships. Like with the king, that became his doorway. So jobs and connections. He nervously prayed his arrow prayer, which is very famous. But some people exist on arrow prayers. We can't. Remember, his prayer was steeped in the long months of prayer. And that was his main strategy. But why was he nervous? Artaxerxes had put a stop to the work some years before, according to the book of Ezra, because he'd had a complaint letter about the legality of the rebuilding and taxes not going into the empire's coffers. He could still have been very anti the rebuilding. Generally, the law of Medes and Persians, these were set in stone, literally. Without Nehemiah knowing, 
God was working and changing things. There were letters, searches set up for a record of, the, of King Cyrus's decree, which ordered rebuilding work, plus assistance, plus punishment of impalement on a beam from your own house if you didn't help. And this had been filed in some lost library somewhere in a record that was somehow lost. And people were asking for it. These letters were demanding it. A search was set up and the whole thing turned around. And for all we know, that happened at this time. Artaxerxes changed his, his tune. All Nehemiah knew was that God had given him a vision and he would be faithful. Prayer changes things. Remember the angel who sprung Peter out of prison and he turned up at Mary's house, the mother of John Mark, and they were praying for his release. And he was at the door and they didn't believe it. We shouldn't be surprised. God is sovereign in the detail. He amazingly steered Angus, an agricultural economist, into housing economics when we decided to move from Canterbury to Cambridge for the sake of the church. And of course, there's far more call for housing economics in the Gulf than agriculture, because it's all deserts. What do you want? The king asked Nehemiah. What are you requesting? Jesus also asks this direct question, doesn't he? What's our answer? He's a big God, so go for broke. Write it down. Habakkuk 2 verse 2. Write the vision. Make it plain so that you may run with it. What's in your heart? Well, what do you want? And there's Angus writing a Mercedes. Seize the opportunities. Speak up. Nehemiah seized this chance and he spoke even though he was terrified. He took a risk. But sometimes windows of opportunity come and pass. We can miss them. Nehemiah asks for personal visit to Jerusalem to rebuild, puts in life in jeopardy, his life in jeopardy for a cause bigger than himself, which reminds me of King Artaxerxes' stepmother, who was probably somewhere around the place, Queen Esther. Do I risk my life for anyone? Am I willing? There's such a hold on us in the UK from mortgages, job security, pensions, families, comfortable living. Don't we think God's got this? Nehemiah left his comfortable palace for a tough trip and a tough job. That sounds familiar too, doesn't it? Jesus left heaven, not just risking death, but absolutely certain of it for a much more tough, tougher role. So seize opportunities, speak up, plan and prepare. Nehemiah knew what to ask for. He'd shrewdly thought through the whole trip and all the details. Preparation precedes opportunity. Are we ready? Are we prepared? Once he got to Jerusalem, he knew to examine the walls. If you read on in chapter 2, verse 12, he went outside the walls to get the viewpoint of his enemies. That's cool. We need to examine how outsiders see things, different cultures and worldviews. We can't build until we know the scene. So, so much easier for us today because we can go short term 
We can suss things out. Google helps. Then Nehemiah got specifics. He was able to ask very detailed. Is God downloading instruction and strategy? When we were trying to get from Jordan into Oman and we didn't have jobs or visas, God just told us specifically, put your feet in the water and it would part. It was very clear. So we obeyed with two small children, a double buggy and a suitcase in each hand. And we had a visit visa for actually three weeks, extending three weeks. Then we had to exit, got another six weeks, exited again, and then we were in. God wanted us to follow that strategy and in the process build our faith and trust in him. So we've had burden, vision, strategy, and now resources. The king showed favour. Isn't that a lovely word? Nehemiah's request pleased him. And most importantly, the good hand of God was upon him. He was given permission and release to go with his travel documents. He had all his up-to-date COVID jabs, whatever the equivalent was, visas, all the paperwork. That takes some doing. He got timber as requested in verse 8 in chapter 2. Material for the gates for access for the walls, for protection, for housing, covering. All these things have to be thought about and provided for. But what I love is the additional officers and horsemen. That sort of got thrown in as a bonus, verse 9. Resources are often the people who get drawn into your vision. Jehovah Jireh is pro-vision. He gives more than all we ask or imagine. And when he's given you a vision, he's very pro. Maybe your role is in the giving. Like the king here. Maybe you earn big bucks and you give for the gospel. Read on and you'll find other resources include opposition, which you can expect from the get-go. And you need to learn to take as a compliment and confirmation. Wind against your wings causes lift. Are we seeing his awesome provision and resourcing in answer to our requests? Plus more than all we ask or imagine. Let's press into Jesus and expect clarity of vision and provision. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is farming imagery of two oxen pulling a load together working. But this verse is in a context of Jesus inviting us to rest. Do you think a yoke is restful? I know I'd much prefer a poolside lounger. But better is one day yoked to Jesus than thousands lolling around without him. He's giving us a new way to bear our burdens, yoked to him who is so very much bigger therefore carrying practically all the weight. And we get to be next to him. We take part with him in step with him. So we don't have to fear or avoid our burdens. They indicate our journey forward. So what are my four words from the beginning of Nehemiah? Burden, vision, strategy, resources. 
I think this will help us steer us towards the where and how in Emmanuel Church. I hope you found these helpful for your life.